I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 6th, 2017. Coming up, part two of our graduation special edition, where we talk to recent or soon-to-be PhD science students about their thesis work and what the future has in store for them. Today's edition of How on Earth is the second of a two-part graduation special. Our guests in the studio today have spent additional years in college to study particular areas of science in depth, living through that mysterious life called grad school, and have made it through to the other side to tell us about it. So we have three recently or soon-to-be newly minted PhDs with us to talk about their thesis research, their grad school experiences, and perhaps what they have planned next. In the studio, I have Abby Koss from the CU Boulder Chemistry and Biochemistry program, Matteo Crismani, CU Boulder Department of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences, and Callie Fiedler from the CU Boulder Electrical Engineering. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Abby, if I may, I'll start with you. What was your thesis? Do you remember your thesis title? I do. So my thesis title was New Insights into Fossil Fuel Volatile Organic Compound Chemistry and Emissions Using H3O Plus and NO Plus Chemical Ionization Mass Spectrometry. So that's a mouthful. (laughs) That is. Can you translate? (laughs) I appreciate. So I am an air quality scientist. And in my thesis research, I built a very fast and ultra-sensitive chemical sensor that can measure a particular type of atmospheric pollution. In my group, which is with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, we build these sensors and then we take them into the field to tackle real-world air quality problems. In my thesis, I focused on pollution from fossil fuel sources. So that means the oil and gas industry and cars and trucks but I and my sensor have also been involved in a lot of other projects, including looking at wildfire smoke, um, emissions from cows actually near <sighs> Greeley, of course, and even what trees breathe out. Yeah. So all, all these different sources here. So when you talk about work in the field, before we get to your thesis work and results, give us a visual, what is your work in the field involve? So we do a couple different things. So one of the things that we do is we pack a trailer full of chemical instruments and we go and park it somewhere that has an air quality problem. So this could mean installing our instruments on a gas um, pad, maybe out in Utah. It could mean setting up in a forest in rural Alabama. We also have a mobile laboratory. So this is a van that's equipped to run our chemical instrumentation. And using the van, we can then drive around to look at little sources tiny emission sources and get a good handle on what those are producing into the atmosphere. So we've done things like driving around a well pad Mm -hmm. so we can look at the specific types of industrial infrastructure. And the last thing that we do is we use airplanes. So NOAA has several P-3 Orion research aircraft. This is a large plane. It's about the size of a small passenger jet. 
and this plane is actually used mostly for hurricane research. But hurricanes don't happen all the time, and when they're not using it, we get to pack it full of our instruments, and then we can use the plane to fly over places that have air quality issues and get a snapshot of a really broad area. So how do you pick these places? These are places you mentioned, some of them already have air quality issues. So how do you choose those and how do you know which ones to look at for your study? So working for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is a little different than working for an academic lab because we're a government institution. And so the types of problems that we tackle are things that are immediately relevant. They affect a large number of people and they're also things that have policy implications. And so, um, for instance, with the oil and gas research that we're doing, we're currently in the middle of a very large national debate about the environmental impacts of fracking, for instance. And so this is how we choose our topics based on their relevance. Just coming from uh, astronomy, it's different for me thinking of writing a thesis that could have some direct political policy impact. <laughs> How does that feel, knowing that the thesis that you are doing may impact some science policy or political debate? I appreciate that a thesis, including mine, is actually a very small part of the scientific endeavor. But what I do in my research forms the groundwork for the measurements that we take later, that later feed into scientific reports that we provide to our partners and regulatory agencies. And ultimately, that goes into law, hopefully. And so it definitely makes you more aware of being careful about your data. Not that the rest of you aren't careful with your data. <laughs> <laughs> being very careful and very precise and very conscientious about how you collect data and how you interpret it. What were the results you got from your thesis? So my thesis had a couple different sections. So I did a lot of work building these sensors. In the end, we were able to develop a sensor that at the time that we finished building it was really the best in the world. It was really at the cutting edge of what we could do. And a sensor for? A particular type of chemical in the atmosphere. So if you remember from my ultra long thesis <laughs> title, um, I'm looking at volatile organic compounds. So organic doesn't mean that you buy it at Whole Foods. It means that it has carbon and hydrogen in it. So these are the molecules, the types of chemistry that are found in living organisms. So they're so central to life. And a lot of them have health effects and they can also affect our agriculture as well. So these are carbon-based uh, compounds. Yeah, that's right. So. I spent a lot of time building the instrument to do this, so that's one result. <laughs> and then we did a lot of different projects actually using this sensor, this instrument. We have measured um, VOCs, volatile organic compounds, in an oil gas field in Utah for several years, where we found that it has ozone problems, so photochemical smog problems in the winter that are actually significantly worse than what Los Angeles experiences which is pretty incredible. We can also see from our aircraft studies using NOAA's P3 aircraft that oil and gas fields across the United States are all very unique in terms of the types of atmospheric pollution that they give out into the environment and the types of problems that they have and the sources that pollution comes from. You were saying your thesis was uh, perhaps a number of different results kind of put together into a final defense. Yes, that's true. 
and they all fit together to give an idea of different characteristics of air quality in different places. Yeah, that's a good characterization. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Let's talk to our next guest here, Matteo. You have not defended yet. No, not yet. August is the date. So (laughs) what do you think the title of your thesis is going to be? Well, I know the title of my thesis. Uh, The contents of my thesis are still in debate. Uh, What we're looking at is a cometary gas and dust delivered to Mars. Um, This was basically spurned by um, an event that was really unusual. And this happened in 2014. There was a comet named uh, Sighting Spring, which you may or may not have heard about. Um, And it passed very close to Mars. In fact, it was closer than, so the the moon uh, is about a third of the distance to the moon. Um, And so what happened was there was a deposition of cometary gas, um, as well as a huge meteor shower directly after. And it just so happened that the instrument that I work on, uh, which is on the MAVEN mission, the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution mission, um, had happened to arrive one month before we got there, or before the um, comet got there. So you were able to use instruments on the MAVEN spacecraft to observe this near miss. Yes, yeah. And what instruments did you use? Uh, the spacecraft probably has many, many instruments to look at different things. How did you look at this event? So we use the uh, primary remote sensing instrument, which is the Imaging Ultraviolet Spectrograph, which is actually built here at CU Boulder. Um, and what we did was... Uh, the way that our instrument works is we can um, place uh, an image on the sky, so to speak, um, except that we can see it in many wavelengths. So we can see uh, observations in hydrogen, observations in carbon dioxide. And, and normally what we would do is we'd be looking at the planet in order to um, observe the loss of these species uh, to space because that's the primary mission of MAVEN. But what we did is um, before we looked at the planet, we looked at the comet itself. And the first thing I was able to do was to take an image of the comet in hydrogen. Uh, and then we took some images of the planet itself and watched before and after, um, and watched the effects of the meteor shower on the top of the atmosphere. So were you in grad school during this time? Yeah, actually, I happened to get uh, on the team before we launched. So I was able to go down to Florida, watch the launch, and then also help calibrate it on its way to Mars. And did you already have, well, you didn't already have in mind because you didn't know the comet was necessarily going to be observed at that point? Well, so uh, we found out that the comet was on its way before we launched, um, and there was some debate about spacecraft safety and whether we should put Kevlar on it and whatnot. Uh, And instead, uh, uh, we decided just to hide behind the planet during the most dangerous time. And so... uh, I think I saw that in Star Wars once. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we knew that it was going to be there, and actually we had plenty of time to plan observations around this event. So were you involved in the planning of the observations with the mind of, I've got to get these data for my thesis? (laughs) Uh, I didn't know at the time that it would be my thesis, but I did know that this was an extremely rare event. In fact, the frequency of this close an encounter is one in a hundred thousand years. So it's very fortuitous that we uh, happened to arrive a month before. You know, if we'd missed our launch window, we would never have been able to see this. Well, a lot of science is serendipity. You know, it's uh, Mm -hmm. things we plan for and the things that happen. You were looking, you said, at hydrogen wavelengths and uh, some other wavelengths. What did you see? Uh, so first we took an image of the um, comet, and we were able to measure its production of water. Um, and then I think the thing that was really interesting to me is we looked at the planet, um, and we saw normal emissions from the top of the atmosphere that are consistent with a warm 
uh, atmosphere. And then right after the comet passed by, we saw this really strong emission from ionized magnesium. And this was very high in the atmosphere, 120 kilometers. Uh, and we said, well, what the hell is that? Yeah. Uh, and it turns out that this is from uh, really small pieces of dust, so stuff that's uh, a, as big as a pea or as small as a grain of sand, hitting the top of the atmosphere um, at very high velocity and then melting. Uh, and those grains of sand are made up of things like iron, magnesium, etc. Um, and so what you saw is this deposition um, at these altitudes of uh, meteoric metals. And you knew this was from the comet rather than something, a dust storm or something that happened on Mars? Well, here's the interesting thing. Because it's 120 kilometers, there's no way to loft this material from the surface that high up. So the only way to get it to 120 kilometers is for it to be exogenic, for it to be falling in from the top of the atmosphere. So does this tell you something more about Mars or about comets? Uh, so interestingly enough, they, when, when we wrote this first paper that said, okay, this happened, uh, they were said, well, does this happen all the time? Um, the question was, are there, intrinsically the question was, are there shooting stars on Mars? Um, and so they, they said, well, we don't really think so, but go ahead and have a look, Mateo. Uh, <laughs> and it turned out that we needed to fix some of the data processing. And when you do that, yeah, you can actually find that small shooting stars happen all the time at Mars. So a lot of people may not know shooting stars are in fact debris very often from our perspective, the Earth passing through comet tail debris that burns up in the atmosphere. So if I were standing on the surface of Mars, if I was the Martian and I didn't have anything else to do growing my potatoes and I looked up, would I actually see shooting stars like I do on Earth? Yeah, you do, you would. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Mateo. If you just joined us, you are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and I'm with three graduating or graduated graduate students from various departments at the University of Colorado. We've already met Abby Koss and Matteo Crismani. And next guest here is Callie Fiedler. Hello, Callie. Hello. So do you remember the title of your thesis? I would hope so. Uh, so my thesis focused on the characterization of 3D printed materials for regenerative medicine purposes. Uh, so that's a, that is also a mouthful like Abby. Um, so I'll decode some of that for you. Uh, 3D printing is probably one of the biggest buzzwords in, I'd say, technology today. And so I have chosen to focus on um, one specific 3D printing technology, which is called stereolithography. And that uses a resin of material or this liquid material that solidifies when you shine light onto it. And you can build up a 3D structure by projecting or shining light in a two-dimensional slice of a three-dimensional structure and then iteratively stepping down your sample plane to develop a three-dimensional structure. And I, this is a common technique that's used for a lot of um, different kind of rapid prototyping techniques, but not necessarily a, a directly applicable um, technique for, say, biomedicine. And I've always been incredibly interested in tissue engineering and personalized medicine. So when I came to see you for my graduate work, I immediately immersed myself into that community, even though my background is physics. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I found this incredible like wealth of, of people that are focusing on this, this beautiful material called a hydrogel. And that's it's it's so unique because it is it can be comprised of 95% water and you can seed cells into the structure and then they live. It's this, it's this environment that cells really enjoy being in and they can communicate and, and differentiate into native tissue. So these hydrogels 
these hydrogels are what you use to create the structure? Exactly. So I, um, with the uh, with the Bryant Group at in the CU Bioengineering, they um, have have transformed a technology that allows you to three um, D print or use a photochemistry to take this liquid material and turn it into solid. I'm trying to imagine. Mm -hmm. 3D printing with some liquid like this, <laughs> and then I guess you cure it. Is Precisely. It? So so how it works is you take this liquid material and you put it into some some region of your printer and you shine light into this into this region and then you only solidify wherever you have light being shown. And in those regions, you have cells that are encapsulated ideally and you can engineer this specific material to have different chemical or biological cues that, that encourage the cells to go down different differentiation pathways. What does that differentiation Perfect. pathways? Yeah, so um, meaning that, you know, there's a there's a precursor cell called a stem cell, and it is essentially what all cells in your body begin from. And that can be given, you know, say you apply a force or you give it, you know, like some some calcium, it will differentiate down potentially into, say, bone or perhaps cartilage. And so we really, um, with the Bryant group, they've they've really honed this process. But what hasn't been done is structuring the mechanical properties in a way that is relevant for native tissue. And so that's what my the focus of my thesis work has been, is, is developing the technology and the fundamentals to actually print these structures in a representative way of the, the physical formation. So am I picturing this correctly that you're using the hydrogels to create some some shape, mm -hmm. some particular physical structure mm -hmm. that has some medical use, exactly. however you want to define that. And this hydrogel, is it originally mixed with these living cells? Ideally. So in my case, because we were characterizing technology, uh, I it was completely acellular, so there were no cells in the structure initially. Um, but with our collaborators and the Thank goodness, new new researchers in our group. Um, they're taking over my research, and they're starting to seed cells into these structures, um, and then place them into defective implants, specifically for bone cartilage regeneration. Okay, so that was going to be my question: Is this is great? You can yeah. build structures with living <laughs> cells in them. You know, are we gonna? Is this for androids, or what is the use of this? Excellent. Uh, so that's a really great question. There's a, this new field that's that's really started to grow. It's called lab-on-a-chip or body-on-a-chip technology, where you have a microfluidic device, which is essentially just a device that you can flow different materials through, and um, and it can send cells, send signals to different regions of this material. And in you can have pockets within that material that represent different cell lines. So say you could have something that's representative of your pancreas or something that's representative of your liver. And then you could deliver some medicine and see how a single person's specific body would respond in that environment. And by printing to each of those specific um, like cell lines, you can allow them to differentiate within the exact same environment. Would this possibly lead to printing organs? That is exactly the idea. Oh. That is exactly the idea. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And then when one wears out, you just do a replacement? <laughs> it turns out that is a non-trivial process. <laughs> at uh, the moment. Uh, actually, at the moment. <laughs> uh, but there's, uh, there's a lot of really phenomenal work that's going on to, to create these representative structures um, through this 3D printing technique. Very cool. Well, one thing I am picked up on here is this process, which is typical of the process of science, is first you come up with a question, something you want to do for your thesis. It actually not only involves coming up with a question, but thinking, well, how do I answer the question, which may involve building an instrument, because an instrument doesn't exist before that you needed to use to answer the question. So 
So Abby, you talked about needing to build an instrument for your thesis research, um, and that was a particular sensor. This was one that hadn't been built before? So these are not things that you can buy off of the shelf in a store. The types of research that we do is really on the cutting edge of what we're able to measure in the atmosphere in terms of the sensitivity, so how low we can go <laughs> in terms of the detection limit, mm -hmm. the types of chemicals that we can measure, and how many we can measure. And so the type of instrument that I was using, the basic concept of it has been around for a long time. It was actually developed in an Austrian lab to use for air quality science um, several decades ago. And today, this type of instrument is actually used in many different fields, as diverse as looking at wine in wine-producing regions, all the way to air quality, which is what we're doing. What I did for my research was build a new type of this instrument that was more sensitive and faster and could detect more types of compounds. My instrument is also special because we can take it out into the field. We can put it on the airplane and in our mobile laboratory and that's actually very hard to do with very delicate and sensitive chemical instrumentation like this. Is, is there a goal, um, having developed this instrument, of developing a more portable, more robust other non-specialists can use to do uh, broader field testing? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a long ways off in the future for the type of instrument that I build and use. But we have also seen in other places in our field that this has happened with other types of instruments. For example, if you have an ozone sensor or a particulate matter sensor, those used to be very complicated instruments. But today you can buy one that's, it can fit in your backpack actually, and you can carry it around with you and it's battery powered. There's even a program run by a local company that hands these out to elementary school children. Hmm. And so they can do their own atmospheric science projects with these. Atmospheric science in school, <laughs> that's great. It's interesting to hear, we have three very diverse PhD thesis work here. And one thing I think people may find interesting is what got you there? You know, what led you to this point? Either as a kid, were you always interested in something related to your field, or was it just something that came up while you were in college? Uh, so, Callie, do you have any background or how you got there? That's a great question. Um, I, again, as I mentioned, I'm physics background, and so my specialty has always been optics, and I've always been very interested in optics, so lasers. And so... Um, Combining that with my inherent interest in tissue engineering and regenerative medicine, I was able to develop, as, as you mentioned for Abby, a, a 3D printing system that would allow me to combine both of those, those incredible interests that I have um, throughout, you know, like I've developed them throughout my, my entire tenure as a student. Well, laser, you, can't, you can't be lasers. You know? <laughs> I know a lot of astronomers just, how can I get lasers in space? <laughs> uh, and speaking of space, you know, Matteo, what about you? So I actually wasn't always interested in space. Originally, I was uh, um, wanted to be a politics major in undergrad, uh, and then I took a intro to uh, the space exploration program, and I was learning about rockets, and I was like, "Well, that's clearly much cooler." Uh, so I switched fields and never looked rockets. back. Yes. Now that you're on this side of your PhD, Mateo, you're almost on the I'm other saying. side. I, I guess Abby and uh, Callie, do you have any words of wisdom for Mateo before his defense? I first used to think that like the word that would define my thesis work is perseverance, 
But after, like, while, while writing my dissertation and preparing for my defense, it's become endurance. Like, sheer <laughs> endurance. Like, you can do it. You can do it. It's just a lot of, a lot of devotion. <laughs> a lot of devotion, sometimes setbacks that you have to drive through. Always. Always. <laughs> Abby? Uh, get a good night's sleep before your defense. <laughs> that, that's probably maybe the best one because <laughs> everything's out of your control at that point, right? Exactly. Pretty much, yeah. And just maybe one last question for Mateo. Do you have any recommendations for grad students coming up? Uh, people, Potential grad students, people are thinking, maybe grad school's for me. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about our department is that it's uh, broad enough that if you're interested in any type of space research, we'd probably do it. So if you're interested in uh, going to see you Boulder, definitely there. apply. <laughs> Abby and Callie, any other bits of words of wisdom for potential grad students taking, following in your footsteps? I would say for me, it's, it's research your group well and make sure you understand your advisor well and make sure you jive really well with everybody in your group, um, and especially your advisor, um, because that's the person that you're going to have the most close relationship with throughout your entire tenure as a student. So I've done a lot of outreach work during my thesis. And this means everything from talking to elementary school students to judging their science fairs to doing things like this radio program. And that's been so important for me. And I also think it is so important for science to communicate what we're doing to the outside world. And if there were one piece of advice that I'd give to other grad students is to do outreach as much as you possibly can, to talk to as many people as you possibly can, even if it's just your aunt at Thanksgiving dinner, do that. <laughs> just Especially volunteer. your aunt at Thanksgiving dinner. Well, that's great advice from all of you. Thank you all very much. We've been talking with Abby Koss, Matteo Crismani, and Kelly Fiedler, all of whom graduated or will soon graduate with their PhDs. They shared with us today the research behind their thesis work and a bit of a peek into the world of graduate school. Thank you all very much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? We'll call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show... I'm Joel Parker.